Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Today, obviously, is Palm Sunday, um, which is the church's remembrance and celebration of the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. Now, it's necessary that we do this, that is, set aside time to remember the events of Jesus' life, specifically the last week of his life, because the uniquely historical character of our faith. It's important that we do this thing because of the uniquely historical character of our faith, meaning that our faith is not built on ideas, nor is it built on theories. Rather, it's built and founded upon events, things that actually happened in human history. And it's quite easy to forget about this. That is what our faith is really about. We can slip into the assumption that it's a kind of philosophy, a comprehensive view of life and the world, right? That it's really about sort of ultimately our conduct or making us good people or wise or something like that. Such approaches, uh, one author says, become misleading whenever they give the impression that Christianity is essentially a theory. If Christianity is a theory, he goes on, then salvation is ultimately an intellectual matter. It's about getting rid of the wrong ideas and acquiring the right ones. Now, while doctrine and theology are important, very important to the faith, they are not the essential matter. That honor goes to history, to events. So the good news is news. It's not an idea, but a fact. It can be dated and placed in history. Certain people were there when it happened. It's not a general principle, but a person with a name, and his name is Jesus. So because the good news is news, and essentially a historical matter, a key practice for us as the church is remembrance. It's less about debating ideas and hashing out doctrine, and more about remembering events. That is, retelling and rehearsing the story, the life of Jesus, and putting ourselves there as it happened. And on this Palm Sunday, that is our aim, to relive, as it were, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to spread our coats in the road, to wave the palm branches in the air, and to shout with the crowd, Hosanna to the Son of David. So for the majority of this sermon, really the first two-thirds, all I want to do is simply retell the story, commenting only on the context and obscure details that bring out the meaning of the event. So more storytelling initially than preaching, and then at the end what I'll do is circle back around and relate things to our lives. So the story begins with Jesus and his disciples on a pilgrimage. Now, you know how people walk from their homes to Tomei Hill on Good Friday to pray, and 
remember Jesus' death. It's like that, a pilgrimage, except this pilgrimage that Jesus and his disciples were on was commanded by God in the Scriptures. It's one of three pilgrimage, pilgrimages that um, all of Israel were expected to make each year. And so Jewish people from all over the world flocked into Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple was to celebrate Passover. And the journey to the capital was not an easy one, right? It's, it's obviously a difficult journey. There, a lot of the times there were robbers and so on and so forth. But it was a festive occasion. In um, the Psalter, that's the book of Psalms, there's a group of Psalms, 120 to 134, called the Psalms of Ascent. And these were traditionally sung by the people on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem sits on a higher elevation than its surroundings. So the journey toward the capital was a journey upward. It was an ascent. So you can sort of picture it. Jesus and his disciples going up toward the holy city on pilgrimage with a large crowd gathering around them as they drew near. Matthew tells us that just before this, this crowd was following Jesus and a man named Bartimaeus was crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds tried to silence him. They tried to shut him up. But he shouted all the more and finally Jesus heard him and asked, What do you want me to do? He said to receive my sight, and Jesus healed him there on the spot. And it says, then Bartimaeus and everyone followed Jesus. So you can picture them nearing Jerusalem, praising and astonished at all that has been done, chanting these ascension psalms as they near the city gates. But as the crowd gets close to the city, Jesus prepares for his arrival. He orchestrates the whole event in order to send a message, to declare his identity, not in word, verbally telling the people, I am the king, but in deed, in symbolic action. So he gives his disciples very specific instructions about where to find his ride. Verse 2, it says, Jesus says, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there with a colt, and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Jesus even tells his disciples what to do if someone says anything about it. Why are you literally stealing these animals? He says, you shall say to them, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Verse 3. So what's going on here? Why the orchestration? Why does even Matthew pay such attention to some sort of seemingly obscure uh, details? Well, he tells us in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find that same phrase repeated time and again. This took place to fulfill what was spoken and then a certain action by Jesus. This took place to fulfill what was spoken. Now, most of the time, That fulfillment was a matter of providential ordering, meaning from above and not by deliberate action on Jesus' behalf. For instance, Jesus did not arrange for Herod to murder the babies of Bethlehem, nor did Jesus arrange his move to Nazareth. 
But Matthew tells us that in both occasions, they fulfill the words spoken by the prophets. So it's a matter of providential ordering. This matter, however, is different. Jesus is acting very deliberately by requesting a donkey and a colt. He is self-consciously fulfilling prophecy. And it comes from the prophet Zechariah, which we read earlier, which I'll read again. Matthew 21, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been running what we can call an anti-PR campaign. He does not want, it seems, anyone to know about him. All right, have you noticed that strange detail coming up again and again <clears throat> Excuse me, in the Gospels? When John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus retreats from Judea, the center of action, away into Galilee. When he heals people, restoring arms, restoring sight, healing leprosy, He tells them and sternly warns them not to tell anyone about him. Keep silent. He even commands his disciples when his identity is revealed to them not to tell anyone. Don't let anyone know about this. But now there's a shift. As he nears Jerusalem, all that is gone. Jesus deliberately stages events in order to publicly ride into the capital in fulfillment of the Scriptures. The time for silence, the time for withdrawal has ended, and now, for the first time, Jesus publicly reveals Himself to the nation. And how does He reveal Himself? Well, as the King, as the Son of David, and it's no small matter. In fact, what Jesus does here, Proclaiming himself to be the king sets in motion the events to follow. Jesus is playing his hand, as it were. He declares himself the promised king, and now the decision lies with the national leaders and the people. It's the critical moment. There is no more dancing around the matter as in regard to the identity of this prophet from Galilee. The king has come. And the question is, how are the people going to respond? Well, more on that in a moment. So the story continues. Jesus' orders are carried out by his disciples. They bring him a donkey and a colt. And Matthew says, verse 8, that they laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem through the city gates. The crowd spread their coats in the road and were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road also. It's a red carpet of sorts, a royal welcome. And the scripture says, verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus acted with symbolic purpose to demonstrate his identity. And it's not lost on the people. They know what this is about. They know 
what Jesus is intending to communicate, shouting Hosanna to the son of David, that being a title for the promised king. Many centuries ago, God promised David, Israel's greatest king, that a universal ruler, that a king over the world would arise from his lineage. When your days are complete, the promise goes, I will raise up your descendant after you, and I will establish his kingdom and the throne of his kingdom forever. God promised to David that someone would come from his line who would have a throne, a kingdom that endures forever. And as we mentioned, this is only a few days before the Passover when Jews from all around the world made the pilgrimage to celebrate in Jerusalem. In fact, some scholars estimate that around 150,000 people would have flocked and poured into the city at this time, bringing the population at least over around 500,000. So Jerusalem is bursting at the seams, overflowing with visitors. And as they pour in, a massive crowd surrounds Jesus before and behind, spreading their coats on the ground, waving palm branches in the air, and proclaiming him as the promised king at the top of their lungs. And Matthew says that as Jesus entered with his procession, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Now our translations let us down here, at least mine does, rather than stirred, a stronger word ought to be used. In the Greek, it's the word seo, and it means more literally cause to tremble. When Jesus is crucified and he gives up his spirit, Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake. And the word he used to describe that earthquake is this same word. Later on, when the Roman soldiers are standing beside Jesus' temple on guard and they wake up to find that the stone has been removed, it says they tremble, the same word, say, oh, that we have here. Jerusalem was already charged with electricity, already overflowing with an atmosphere because of the Passover. But with Jesus' arrival, the whole place went nuclear. It was trembling at the news, at the arrival of Jesus. Now, we need to understand the political nature of Jesus' actions. The political nature of Jesus' actions. Jerusalem is in an uproar, not for any old reason, but because the promised king has come. It's almost impossible to put into words the expectation and the unease of the moment there in Jerusalem. As much as Jesus' entry into the holy city is an occasion for celebration, an occasion for joy, it's equally, or even more so, an occasion for fear. By riding into the capital with royal acclamation, Jesus is deliberately instigating a conflict with the national leaders. He's tossing a match into a powder keg. Because just consider for a moment, Jesus is not from Jerusalem, he's from Galilee. 
Not from the center of authority, but out there in the backwaters. And here comes this prophet from Galilee, and the people are proclaiming him as king. All the city is in uproar. How are the established rulers, that is Herod, who calls himself the king of the Jews, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over Israel, how are they going to respond when this self-styled king comes rolling up into Jerusalem? Jesus' arrival and the masses welcoming him as the son of David is a direct threat to their rule, a direct threat to their authority. Now, from the beginning of his ministry, these rulers understood that Jesus posed a threat to them. You remember when John the Baptist starts his ministry, he's out again in the wilderness. Not in, not, he's not a sanctioned sort of uh, prophet. He's not someone that's authorized by the authorities. In fact, when the authorities come to check out what's going on with John the Baptist, he rebukes them and calls them a brood of vipers. There's already tension with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist essentially hands the mantle to Jesus. And Jesus then goes about his ministry, winning the favor of the people and unafraid to speak out against the hypocrisy and greed of these rulers. Go tell Herod that fox, Jesus says. He rebukes the scribes, he rebukes the chief priests, and so on and so forth. Now this sort of behavior was tolerable, at least when Jesus was out in Galilee and in the Decapolis. But now he's at their front door. Now he's in the capital, and he's encroaching upon their authority. How do you think they're going to respond? What do you think is going through their mind? Jesus is purposely pushing the national leaders to the brink. He's forcing their hand to act for him or against him. Indeed, he's removing any other option. Jesus knows, the rulers know, that the people are on his side. And there's not much that the rulers can do. Either they let him continue to operate as king and undermine themselves, or they remove him and maintain their rule. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 42, that many of the rulers believed in him. That's Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So you have all these strange and complicated power dynamics. And we also can't forget about the Romans. How are the Romans going to respond? They already have an increased military presence in the capital for the Passover celebration, just in case anything boils over. Now, on top of that, if a conflict breaks out between Jesus and the rulers, the Romans are going to do as they've always done, which is put an end to it with their superior power. Josephus tells us about many times they did this sort of thing in Jerusalem and the wider area, crushing any sort of uprising. And of course, Pilate himself, who's been placed there by the emperor, will not tolerate being seen as incompetent in the eyes of his superiors back in Rome. Indeed, the rulers of Israel knew this. Later, when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, 
and not have him crucified because he knew that he was innocent, the chief priests, or rather the priests, went around the crowd stirring it up and threatening a riot. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. And we're going to do anything unless you give us him and crucify Jesus. And so Pilate, fearing for his reputation, right, fearing that he wouldn't be able or wouldn't be seen as able to rule Jerusalem, fearing that, the scripture says, when he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. So in its political context, we can see just how inflammatory and audacious Jesus' actions are. He's not just coming in as a teacher. He's not just coming in as some sort of spiritual authority. He's coming in as the king of Israel. And he's forcing everyone's hand, instigating a conflict to which there are only two options. Crown him or kill him. And Matthew continues. As he narrates the story, Jesus' procession into the capital leads him straight to the foot of the temple, which is the center of national life. And Matthew tells us, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves. So if his procession into the holy city was not enough to set things off, this will do the job. As I mentioned, the temple is the center of national life for the Jewish people. For us, it's like rolling up the White House, the Capitol building, and the National Cathedral all into one. And Jesus marches into the midst of the temple, and he disrupts the whole thing, overturning tables, casting out authorized officials. Who gave Jesus the right to do this? He's a prophet from Galilee. He's not the high priest. Who authorized him to do such things? I can't go around canceling people's debt or issuing driver's license. I don't have the authorization. And apparently neither does Jesus. And yet he's going around the temple acting like he owns the place. He says in Matthew 21, 13, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7 in our Bibles, which is a warning about the coming destruction of the temple if the people did not turn away from their wickedness. They were were saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, meaning it would never be destroyed. Jesus takes that prophecy and applies it to his day. It's become, he says, a a robber's den. That is, a safe haven for bandits and crooks who pillage and commit violence, who oppress and then retreat to the temple to make sacrifice, thinking they can get away with it. But they can't. By interrupting the economic transactions in the temple... Because that's what Jesus was doing, right? He cast out all the animals. He got rid of the, the tables and the money changers, all of that. So by interrupting the economic transactions in the temple, 
the exchanging of currency, of buying and selling sacrificial animals, what Jesus is doing is interrupting the whole sacrificial system of worship. All offerings and sacrifice would have ceased for some time until the authorities could get things under control again. It all came to a stop. And in cleansing the temple, that is, stopping its operations, Jesus is essentially pronouncing judgment upon it. That its sacrifices would soon stop for good, which they did in A.D. 70. If you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this strange story. It's literally the next story about um, Jesus going to a fig tree. It's not the season for figs, mind you. And he's looking for fruit. And there is none, so he curses it, and it says it withers up. What's the meaning of this? Well, the temple was often depicted as a fig tree. It was a symbol of Israel's national life. And Jesus enacts in his parable a judgment against the temple. He cleanses it and wipes it clean. And so having taken, quote-unquote, possession of the temple, because that's what he's doing, The authorities, or the chief priests, would later come to him and say, Who gave you this authority? By what authority are you doing these things? That is cleansing the temple. So he's taken possession of it. Now that he's done so, Jesus is completely in control of events. It would take only one more step to consolidate that control and to seize power. The leader's hands are tied. There's nothing that they can do. If they confront Jesus... If they tried to arrest him, if they tried to stop his action in the temple, the people would revolt and the Romans would step in. That is absolutely not an option. So instead, the rulers who cannot stand this prophet from Nazareth proclaiming himself to be king, they have to watch on and seethe in their anger as Jesus makes a mockery of them and receives the praises of the people in the temple. There's nothing they can do. And in the eyes of the people, right, those who are acclaiming Jesus as the king, who are standing by as he cleanses the temple, in their eyes, the revolution is two-thirds complete. All that remains is for the, for, uh, is to storm the Roman fortress next door. Remove the vassal uh, uh, ruler Pilate, Take care of him, and they have their independence back. Jesus got the whole city behind him. But Jesus passes up on his golden opportunity. He sets the whole city in uproar. And then he retreats to Bethany. If there was ever a time to seize control, this would have been it. But Jesus did not want to seize control. At least not this way. Instead, he wanted to create the conditions for his crucifixion. To seal his own fate. And he succeeded. Matthew tells us that a few days later, because of this stunt, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Jesus masterfully manipulates the situation to accomplish his mission, to accomplish the Father's hidden will. The people want a king and a kingdom. 
and they're going to get it, not through violent revolution, but on the cross. They're expecting their king to come and overturn it all. And he will, but not in the manner and not in the way that they're expecting. Jesus will do it through the cross. So, the triumphal entry. I've tried to put the whole event in its historical context, but specifically its political context. And I want to draw out its meaning for us along those lines. Now, in Jesus' day, also before and after, there was a movement called, and I'm sure you've heard of them, the Zealots, right? The Zealots. And fundamentally, it was a revolutionary movement opposed to anything, any nation, religion, or ideology that compromised God's exclusive rule over Israel. And so their enemies, the Zealots, were two in number. The Roman Empire, which occupied and dominated their land, and Greek culture, which had infiltrated and overtaken their own. And we can sympathize, right? Imagine your culture, which you value, your ancestral traditions, which you hold so dear, are completely trampled on by an occupying force. How are you going to respond? Well, that was the Zealots. And the Zealots took their inspiration from events a few centuries prior, a revolution against occupying forces. At the time, Jerusalem was um, conquered and overtaken by a megalomaniac king whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He's actually prophesied of in Daniel. And this king abolished the practices of the Torah, right? the practices of the Jewish law. He got rid of it altogether. And what he did was set up a pagan sacrificial system in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now Matthias, a priest at the time, he refused to obey the king's edict. He said, we will not obey the king's word by turning aside from our religion to the right or to the left. And Matthias put his words into action. He killed a man who tried to make sacrifices to the gods in the temple. He murdered him. Now, 1 Maccabees, which we do not regard as Holy Scripture, records the incident. It says, when Matthew saw it, he bur- or Matthias, rather, uh, it says, he burned with zeal in his heart. And his heart was stirred. He gave vent to his righteous anger. He ran and killed on the alt, killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officers who were forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus, he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phineas did against Zimri. So Matthias kills this man trying to offer sacrifice, and kills the king's attendant who was forcing him. And the biblical warrant for this sort of action was Phinehas, right, who that passage mentions. Phinehas was the grandson of Israel's first high priest, Aaron, who killed, that is Phinehas, who killed an innocent man, and a Midianite woman, for having an unlawful relationship. That's Numbers 25. He took his spear and he thrust it through both of them. And he was always remembered for his zeal. He was considered a model for those who were zealous for the worship of God alone. 
So drawing on figures like Phineas and Matthias, the zealots were those who defended Israel's law and freedom with force. Lethal force if necessary. We will not bow to anyone but God. That was their creed. Now, why are these historical details important? Why introduce you to the zealot movement? Because, for all we can tell, that's how the people understood Jesus, as a zealot-like figure. In fact, one of his disciples, Simon, not Simon Peter, he was a self-identified zealot. Luke tells us that. He had to find and see something in Jesus that was the answer to his nationalistic dreams, or at least he imposed that upon Jesus. There was maybe some overlap there. And in our passage, for onlookers, Jesus' action in the temple, driving out money changers, overturning the tables, emptying the cashier drawers, John tells us, fashioning a cord of whips. When they saw that, that was all the justification they needed. The promised king has arrived, he's humiliating the national leaders, they're not doing a thing, and he's taking ownership of the temple. They, they, won't, even, they won't even touch him, and they, they engage in debate. That's really the next week of Jesus' life, is just debate with the Pharisees and the chief priests. They engage in this debate, and Jesus schools them. And it says at one point, they, just, they, don't, they don't even want to touch it anymore, they just leave him alone. Jesus has humiliated them, and the people are thinking, the next step is revolution. And then freedom. We'll get our land back, our people back, so on and so forth. Now, it's almost beyond doubt that this is what the masses were expecting. Now, even today, there are numerous scholars who cast Jesus as a failed zealot. A failed zealot. He rode into the temple, ready to, make, uh, ready, ready to take his kingdom by force. But instead, he was captured and executed instead. Right? He was captured and executed. And the Gospels, they say, are an attempt to conceal this fact, right? To conceal the truth about Jesus and to spin the story in a different direction. Basically, to turn him into sort of a, a, um, you know, a, a peace-loving figure. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what these people, scholars, say. And this is the true Jesus, they say, a zealot. Um, this is the Jesus before Christianity got hold of him and transformed him. And that's what you have in the Gospels. That's what they tell us. There's a popular book um, entitled Zealot by uh, a man, Reza Aslan, and he argues for this very thesis. Um, it's a flawed book based on a lot of flawed assumptions about the Gospels, namely that they're not eyewitness accounts. He dates them way late, and then he says these are not based on accounts. This is just sort of reconstruction, so on and so forth. Nevertheless, his, his thesis that Jesus is a failed zealot, that he wanted to take the kingdom by force, is very provocative. Now, what are we to say to that? Well, in one sense, it's right. Jesus was a zealot, but of a radically different nature. In John's gospel, as Jesus cleanses the temple, a passage from Scripture comes into the minds of the disciples. And he tells us, that's not right. There we go. John chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
the passage from Scripture that comes to the mind of the disciples is Psalm 69. Specifically a psalm about one who suffers on God's behalf. The zeal that consumes this figure is not the passion that inflicts violence, but bears it. Psalm 69, verse 9, The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Jesus' devouring zeal leads him to suffer on God's account, to bear in his own person the reproaches that are directed at God. In other words, Jesus' zeal for God's house leads him not to violent revolution, which he rejected at every turn. Think of the temptation narrative. What does Satan offer to Jesus? All the kingdoms of the world, if you'll but worship me. Detour the cross if you just bow your knee. Jesus refuses and he takes the way of the cross. Later on, Peter says, you're not going to suffer on the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In the garden, as death is bearing upon Jesus' heart, he says, if there's any other way, Father, let it be, but not my will, but thy will be done. He tells Peter to put away his sword. Do you not know that I could command a legion of angels to end this whole thing? He rejected that sort of violent revolution at every turn and instead chose the cross. In a certain sense, Jesus and the zealots shared the same goal. God's kingdom renewed over the entire earth but they differed radically about how to accomplish it. For the zealots, political violence was the answer. Take the kingdom by force. Paul may have even been a zealot, persecuting Christians, killing them, dragging them before the court, doing whatever he could to stop this movement. But for Jesus, it was the very opposite. He transformed that zeal that would serve God through violence into the zeal of the cross. True zeal, that which is ultimately pleasing to God, is the zeal of self-giving love. And that's the rule that Jesus lays down for all of his followers without exception. Now, in conclusion, what does any of this mean for us? Well, first, Jesus' zeal that leads him into the capital and then to cleanse the temple is for us a demonstration of what matters. Can you be driven to act decisively, even radically, for something, for anything? What if it was threatened? What if it was jeopardized would lead you to act in such a manner? It would have to matter immensely to you for you to act in such a way. Now, for Jesus, that something was God's house. Seeing the perversion and corruption of it, how far it was from its original God-given purpose, a house for my name, provoked him to extreme action. He could not stand to see it as it was. Or think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he comes to Athens. It says he saw all the idol worship and he was provoked within himself. Now to be honest, when I see the zeal of Jesus, and this story has always, for some reason, captured me, 
to be honest, I'm quite frightened and also reproached by Jesus' zeal. Frightened because of its intensity. Now, Jesus, all his ministry was humble and gentle and patient with everyone. But here in the cleansing of the temple, that burning fire underneath is let out. It's like standing before some mighty force of nature. A fierceness for God's name and his house that's almost incomprehensible. And for that reason, which is, which is frightening, I, we, are also reproached. Because how weak our zeal burns in comparison. How unexcitable and unmoved we are. How lost we are in our own petty concerns. Yet Jesus' zeal directs him toward us, the true temple. Later on, just a few moments later, or the next day rather, Jesus will tell a parable about uh, a vineyard and landowners. The owner goes away and he sends his son and they say, there's the heir, let's kill him and take possession. It's a parable about his cross. And Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, well, what do you think? And they said, well, they should, the owner should destroy them. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone in the temple, or the, the chief cornerstone. And this is God's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. One temple will be destroyed, and Jesus will become the chief corner of another temple. That's the church. And his passion for the temple made without hands is the same as his passion for the temple made with hands. Jesus' all-consuming zeal is directed toward us, the temple, that we would not be a den of robbers, but a house of prayer. And as I mentioned, it's frightening that our lives are the object of such great concern to Jesus, that his zeal and his jealousy would be stirred up when our love is given to another. Again, his zeal teaches us what matters. The things that we overlook, right, that we are tempted to treat lightly, to just bypass, to say, no, it's not that important. These are the very things that touch a nerve with Jesus, that when he saw them, provoked his zeal within him. And in the same manner, the things that matter so much to us mean very little to him, bypasses them as small things. So how does Jesus' zeal for your life coincide with your own priorities for yourself? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Hallowed be thy name. So as we begin Holy Week this year, I just want to invite you to press deeper into the intensity of the zeal of our Lord who does not bypass the cross, but because he loves the Father and has come for his glory, will go to the cross. His zeal will lead him to humiliation and death for us and for our salvation. Hosanna to the Son of David. So I invite you up now to come receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. Uh, take time to
meditate, to commune with the Lord, and I will lead us in celebration in just one moment.